entire Bible, which is a pretty uh, healthy claim to make, I would say. But uh, what I'd like to do is read you, um, gosh, let me read through... uh, Let me read you from verse 12 through the end of the chapter, just this once, and then we'll uh, not read that much the next time. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man, Jesus Christ, for if by one man, man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteousness, righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I bet as I read that, you, uh, you were somewhat taken aback with some of the, the twists and the turns in the text because it's not exactly the easiest thing in the world to understand. <clears throat> and there is one particular key uh, that will be really simple for everyone to see um, that will help. And I want to point that out to you in just a minute. But um, verse 12 introduces uh, an entire new section of, uh, of at least this chapter. And really, um, his purpose in this section is to compare uh, Adam and Christ. The the major point is to show that just as we were once in Adam, similarly, we are now in Christ. Um, Christ is the head of this new humanity. And Christians are not only forgiven, but uh, we have become members of this new race, this new uh, kingdom of priests, a new humanity. And the word imputation, which is found in the text, which is going to be pretty important. I mean, we've gone over that word in here before, but it's going to be pretty important. It's um, found in verse 13 uh, that you make, that you be able to grasp that word because that's at the center of this comparison. Uh, imputation is nothing new. Uh, God has always dealt with man through uh, through a head, through a representative. Uh, it's called federal headship, which we'll look at later. Um, but what what we what he does in this passage is suggest that our old relationship to Adam provides for us 
uh, a picture of our new relationship to Christ. So that's, what's, that's what this passage is about, but there are some twists and turns, guys. It's heavily theological. That is, this passage is heavily theological. You have uh, the doctrines, for instance, of original sin, which we'll take a look at, uh, at least I think we'll get to take a look at it tonight, the doctrine of original sin. You have an introduction here of covenantal theology. Um, you know, people ask me... Uh, People ask me if I'm a Presbyterian, and, and I am a Presbyterian, but a Presbyterian doesn't tell you anything about my theology. That tells you about my church government. Um, but I'm a covenantalist. That'll tell you something about my theological position. I'm a covenantalist. And here's a text um, that has to do with covenantal theology. There's something very important also in here about the historicity of Adam, uh, which I'm dying to get to, but it'll probably be next week before we can get to it, to the, the historicity of Adam is is of major significance, and, um, and I, I want to tell you a story about a confrontation I once had uh, over that issue, but we, I don't think we'll get to that tonight. But, uh, so those are just three of the items, original sin, covenantal theology, the historicity of Adam, uh, are, are all in this, uh, this passage here, really going through verse 19. And as I said earlier, some call it the most important passage of Scripture in the Bible. Because what he introduces here is something that he is going to say and clarify and re-say again and again all the way through the end of chapter 8. So um, if you know anything about the book of Romans, you know that chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 are, are the, the heart of the matter, are the real guts of the, the matter. And, and boy, it begins in earnest now. So uh, um, buckle up and let's, let's enjoy this this marvelous piece of uh, theological presentation with great application for our souls. He begins by saying, just as. Now, guys, um, he begins by saying, therefore, but just as. You know, uh, as students of the English language, when you find a just as, you're supposed to find something else. For instance, um, I mean, we ever taught this, but if you ever have a sentence with uh, not only you also have to have the, later on, a but also. Well, um, when you have a, um, a just as, then you have to have an even so. And interestingly enough, the even so does not come until verse 18. Um, so instead of completing... His comparison uh, in verse 12, he, go, he goes off into a tangent, somewhat of a tangent, but I want you to look at it because, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't get this, you're going to misinterpret this section of Scripture. I guarantee you are. Now, gang, um, in my Bible, in my copies, and I know in many of yours, you will note that after, uh, in verse 12, because all sin, there is a dash a long dash, and then the next thing you'll see after the 13 is a parenthesis. The opening of a parenthesis. That parenthesis is not closed until the end of verse 17. So what you have in verses 13 through 17 is highly and purely parenthetical. Because the stream of what he is saying begins in verse 12, but he does not resume that stream until verse 18. 
Now, if you missed that parenthesis there, ladies and gentlemen, you missed the whole under, and one of the reasons that it was so confusing to you is uh, because you've got, a, you've got Paul, as he begins to teach these things, and having made this great propositional statement that he makes in verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and as he goes on, he makes this enormously pregnant uh, propositional statement in verse 12, it's almost as if he, as the author and, and pastor that he is, realizes that these Roman Christians uh, are not going to, these Gentiles are not going to know everything that a Jew might know, might know uh, that they already know. And so he pauses to explain a few things to them so that he can go on. His audience uh, being comprised of, I mean, the book sent to Rome is a Gentile audience. Now, but, uh, and having Gentiles read it, they don't have the, the benefit of understanding Jewish history as do a Gent- does a, a Jewish reader. And so he makes this great statement in verse 12, and then he thinks, wait a minute, my audience is not going to understand everything I just said, so I need to insert something in here that will help them grasp this whole argument that I'm about to unfold. And that's what verses 13 or 17 are. They are parenthetical. Um, and, and just kind of as an aside, just one of my little pet peeves is that I think um, we Christians sometimes, we throw around words and ideas with a non-Christian friend, and they don't have the slightest notion about what you're uh, talking about. One of the things that I think that Jimmy Umloff does really well is that he explains words to us from time to time uh, that, that we sing, you know, like uh, on this terrestrial ball. You know, that's, um, uh, you know, somebody who's visiting with us and has been in church for years doesn't have the slightest idea what a terrestrial ball is. You know? And um, uh, uh, there's lots of things that we have that in our hymnology. But we throw around words. When we're talking to non-Christians, we use the word like righteousness. That's a wonderful word, ladies and gentlemen. A wonderfully uh, meaningful word to us. But I'm telling you, I dare say, if I were to ask this whole audience to stand up, give me a definition of righteousness, that only a a bare few of you could do it. But we use it and expect the non-Christian world to follow us. When, in fact, we're not fully sure what the word righteousness is all about. Um, you know, I, I've heard people take the word justification, and um, and and they this is the definition they give to it. Just as if I'd never sinned, you know, justified, justified, never sinned. Well, that might be cute, but ladies and gentlemen, it misses the mark about three quarters of the way. That is, it doesn't tell you three quarters of what that word means. And if we don't understand the words, we've got to make sure that our audience understands that words. And I, I think you, that's what you see happening here uh, with Paul. By the way, uh, this is not the only place you find things like this. Um, let, let me just show you one because I'll, I'll show you this in a couple of weeks from the pulpit. But if you can find Acts chapter 1 real quick. Um, same kind of thing. Um, uh, you'll notice uh, this is Acts chapter 1. And there is this mention, uh, Peter stands up, and I'm in verse 18, excuse me, verse 15, and uh, Peter stands up and says that Judas's place that he has now uh, left uh, needs to be filled. And so there, they set about to, uh, you know, appoint uh, a twelfth apostle, and you'll notice in verse 18, there's another parenthesis. 
Now, this man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst it over in the middle of the gutter, and his entrails gushed out. <laughs> well, and the, and the, and the uh, parenthesis ends at the end of verse 19. Well, gang, remember, who is Luke writing to? He's writing to a guy by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus doesn't have the slightest notion what happened to Judas and that he hanged himself and fell headlong and all his entrails gushed out. Um, he didn't, so it, it, while Luke is writing, he thinks, well, you know, he remembers Theophilus doesn't know how Judas died and why he's uh, absent from the uh, apostolic band. So I need to tell him. So he pauses and just uh, fills him in in verses 18 and 19. All parenthetical. Uh, and that's what you find Paul doing here in, um, in verses uh, 13 through 17. Actually, verses 13 and 14 explain the last part of verse 12. Uh, that death spread to all men because all sinned. And then what you're going to find is an explanation of that for a Gentile reader in verses 13 and 14. And then verses 15, 16, and 17, um, what they do, and we'll find this out later, um, they kind of um, explain the last clause of verse 14, um, which is, who is a type of him who was to come. Verses uh, 15 and 17, 15 through 17, explain in what respect Adam is really a figure of him who was to come. So, guys, um, we'll come back to all of that later on as we work through the passage. But I felt like it was wise as we introduced this passage to tidy things up just a little bit so that we won't get lost from the very beginning. Um, before we proceed, you need to know some of those things that will be very helpful to you. And everybody can understand what a parenthetical statement is, and that will help you when you try to wrestle with the rest of this, this verse. Now, uh, don't forget, however... The main thrust of this text is, as we are all related by nature to Adam, so, or even so, we who are Christians are also related by grace to Christ. We are related by nature to Adam. We are related by grace to faith. By grace to Christ, excuse me. That's the point. In, in one sense, you could say, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that the rest of what Paul is going to say here is going to give us uh, a very expansive definition of what it means to be reconciled, which was the word that he introduced in verse 10. And so just this long treatment of what it means to be reconciled to God. Okay? Now that's all by way of introduction. So we now come back to verse 12. You know, guys, um, anyone that uh, looks at uh, uh, mankind very long doesn't have to, uh, I mean, realizes that there are two great universals that, um, that nobody can ignore nor uh, deny. Um, they, are, they are two things that are, are, are very clearly seen, I guess you could say. And number one is the universality of sin, and the other is the universality of death. Um, every man sins and every man dies. That's not a 
It's not a new piece of information, is it? In fact, you don't have to be a Christian um, to, uh, to believe in those things. You, we all, whether Christian or not Christian, you believe that every man sins and every man dies. And both of those things, both of those universals, are mentioned in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death uh, through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. There are those two universals right there. But the, um, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is how one explains the origin or how does he account for the existence of these two universals. How does the Christian explain the existence of those two universals? And how does the non-Christian explain the existence of those two universals? That's what uh, one of the fundamental things that makes us so vastly different, ladies and gentlemen. And there's really only two possible explanations. There is the, explan- there is the evolutionary approach, and that is that there is no such thing as sin. Um, the non-Christian world hates that word, uh, sin, which means that guilt has come along with it. And, but that um, the problem is that, uh, that man has just not evolved into a uh, higher enough level yet to cover all of his uh, uglinesses. You know, um, when uh, Darwin wrote The Origin of Species in, in the mid-1800s, I think, uh, 1860, something like that, 1860, something like that. Anyway, uh, there was this burst of enthusiasm over the, uh, um, the, the centrality and the beauty and the wonder of man. And um, then we turned the century and we, um, we ran into World War I. And uh, those who were devotees of a philosophically evolutionary approach to life said, oops, we just kind of slipped off the wagon and everything's going to be fine. And then, we bam, the depression, worldwide depression. And then uh, they did that way, you know, there's just some mistakes made in the economy. And then we kind of pulled ourselves out of that. And then, bam, um, World War II. Um, this is a document, ladies and gentlemen, that was originally, originally written in 1933, uh, the Humanist Manifesto. Uh, it was written in, 93, uh, in 33, and then it was updated, uh, the Humanist Manifesto 1 and 2. The second document was, um, was updated in 1973. And it's interesting um, to read this thing. Um, well, just a couple of observations and just a couple of things. But they're, they're, all, I'm, all I'm saying is that uh, there's a couple of ways to explain uh, these two universals. Well, the humanists, using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, um, markedly reduce disease, extend our lifespan, significantly modify our behavior, alter the course of human evolution and cultural development, unlock vast new powers, and provide humankind with unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant, meaningful life. Well, that's, that's nice, and we all appreciate it. It's inter- interesting, though, that the first issue in the human, Humanist Manifesto has to do with religion. That's the first thing that they want to <clears throat> address. Listen to how they address it. We find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of 
<coughs> of a supernatural, uh, it is either meaningless or irrelevant to the question of the survival and fulfillment of the human race. As non-theists, we begin with humans, not God, nature, not deity. Nature may indeed be broader and deeper than we now know. Any new discoveries, however, will but enlarge our knowledge of the natural. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. And then when it comes to ethics, we affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational. Oh, my goodness, ladies and gentlemen. You, can't, you, you just don't know how dangerous are those five words. Ethics is autonomous and situational. Do you get that? <laughs> uh, you know, you've heard of the Joseph Fletcher's famous book, Situation Ethics, which means that uh, the controlling factor in all of ethics is love. So therefore, if, uh, if I felt like uh, it was a loving thing to do, um, I... Uh, I could shoot Steve Brown and not have any worries about it because it's, I'm autonomous, I'm a law unto myself, and the situation demanded it. Ooh, that, is, that, that, that is what reigns today. And is, anyway, uh, ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideolo ideological sanction. You, you just can't imagine how awful that is. Um, ethics stems from human need and interest. To deny this distorts the whole basis of, of life. Human life has meaning because we create and develop our futures. Reason and intelligence are the most effective instruments that humankind possesses. Um, on and on and on it goes. All I'm saying is that there is one explanation as to the existence of sin and death. And the explanation is sort of a, uh, it's, it's really not a scientific approach as much as it is a philosophical approach. That ultimately death can be uh, at least um, uh, muted and uh, sin is just, uh, that, that's non-existent. It's, a, um, it's just a, uh, we haven't evolved quite high enough. And that is the foundation of Everything, ladies and gentlemen, called humanism. Uh, humanism answering those two universals. Draw, I mean, we begin to take off in entirely different directions over verse 12 of Romans 5. We know they both exist. The universality of sin, the universality of death. The big question is, how do you explain their existence? Now, the other... Um, uh, Approach is, of course, what I would suggest is a biblical approach to, uh, to answering how do you explain the existence. And um, this is what Paul is doing, explaining why sin, where it came from, and where did death come from. And notice in the text how Paul animates. He almost personifies sin. He talks about, for instance, in verse 12, sin entered. In verse 21, he talks about sin reigned. And in verse 20, he talked about sin abounded. Sin is, uh, is not merely a, a lack of certain uh, character qualities or, um, or a low evolutionary state. Paul describes sin as something that it's active. It, is, it does things. It's, a, it's an alien and hostile force. 
sin is is an act that leads to guilt. Um, I, I, I I don't know what I should do this or not because it just it, uh, I don't think it benefits you much, but it does show you that I have a seminary education. Um, the, the Greek word for sin is a, is a word, hamartia. Uh, it's an interesting word because it's an archery term. Um, it's, a, it's a word that describes one with a bow and an arrow missing a target. A target, bow and arrow, landing short of the goal. That's what the Greek word hamartia is. It's an archery term. So, so when you sin, we have fallen short of a goal, of a standard. But then, of course, humanism decries such a position because whose standard? Who set the goal? Uh, of course, we Christians, we, of course, reply that God does and God gets to. Um, we describe sin as, as being an attitude of rebellion that man has, has uh, uh, come under this new reigning principle when sin entered and then everything changed. Um, I've told this story, but I don't know what I've ever told it in here or even on Sunday morning, but I know I told it to my Trip 2 group, which is a, um, just a group of men that I meet with periodically. And, and um, it, it is... To me, it's just a wonderful illustration about the ravages of sin in all of us. Uh, it was told by Malcolm, Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a, a journalist for uh, in Britain and died in like 1960, I think. But Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, even uh, he he also hosted a kind of like a Larry King Live kind of guy. Um, but he was a well thought of in the, around the world as a journalist and a commentator on social events. And he was visiting India at one time and. Um, um, for some assignment, <clears throat> and he was out swimming in a lake or a river or whatever he was swimming in. And um, um, he noticed as he was swimming that on the other side of the, the, let's say, let's call it a lake, on the other side of the lake, there was a woman on the other side of the lake who began to disrobe. And he got all excited about this woman who was disrobing right there on the uh, on the side of the I'll have to tell you my Israel stories one of these days, but um, but uh, <laughs> that was that was awful, wasn't it, Jack? Um, <laughs> but anyway, Malcolm Margaret is swimming. Uh, well, let me just pause. The <laughs> there's a couple of little, but we were we were around the Dead Sea, and you know the Dead Sea is this place where this, it's a it's a it's a geological anomaly because you can't drown in it. You can't, you can't sink in it. There's so many nutrients in it that you, you can't sink. It'll hold you up. And all you have to do is, is, um, is just rock back in the water. And the water, you don't have to, you don't have to know how to float. Um, it'll float you because it has so much stuff in it. So it's a, and, and I had read about that for years and couldn't wait to, you know, to, to get into the Dead Sea and, and try her out, you know, and... And, uh, and a lot of us, we'd just gotten off the bus, and it was, we just walked up to Masada, and it was hot as blue blazes up there, and, and um, uh, rode this thing over this canyon that I can't believe I ever got on. But um, anyway, we come to the Dead Sea, and, and I'm just, you know, just <laughs> running down this little thing and, and, uh, to get into the Dead Sea. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to experience this. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm from here to the wall, from the water, 
and uh, about from me to Bill Dreyer, this woman who was about 60 and, and weighed about 360, uh, <laughs> bends over right in front of me and drops her drawers. <laughs> And I was, I was terrified. <laughs> terrified. And I just <laughs> and went back the other way <laughs> and had no idea what was going on. <laughs> okay, that's my real story. <laughs> but the Malcolm Muggard story is um, uh, he's swimming in this, in this lake and he notices that this woman is disrobing. And, and, and it and excites him so that he begins to swim harder. He wants to get over there. And he, and he begins to figure. Now, Malcolm Muggeridge is telling this story. He says, you know, here's a little peasant girl in India. You know, she probably needs the money. Uh, I could ask her to prostitute herself, and she would probably jump at the chance because, uh, you know, she needs the money. And, and here I am halfway around the world. Nobody knows the difference. And um, so he keeps swimming faster and faster to get over there. And... Um, um, uh, comes as he gets closer, and he, you know, he gets to the place where his feet hit the ground, and he's you know, walk up the uh, the, uh, the shoreline. He, uh, the woman, indeed, ha- has disrobed, and he notices that she's a leper, and he reacts with great revulsion. And turns around and gets back in the water. And he said as he, he swam away, he said, you know, she's not the leper. I'm the leper. And, and he, he talked about how he loved his wife. He loved his family. And to think that the people that I loved the most that I could have sinned against that easily was the thing that convinced him that he had to look no further than his own heart to discover the ravages of sin in his life. Um, I, um, the, the text, of course, says that sin entered the world. Um, and the, the word entered is a word that could be reasonably translated uh, uh, has invaded, oh my goodness, um, l- let me hold that till, we'll, we'll start there next week because I want to read you a couple of things real quick. Um, this is a, um, I tell you what, I- I'm going to read this one and then I'll, I'll save this one for next week. Um, but this is something I found, I think I found it in a um, Ray Stedman book. And it was a description of the universality of sin. Now, gang, we're going to come back and give that a name next week. It has a theological name to it. It's called original sin. But uh, Ray Stedman quoted this thing, which I, I it's just unbelievable. It was a document that was produced by the Minnesota uh, uh, Commission on Crime. Now, this is a state agency that produced a, 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 an estimate of of crime and what was to be done about it. And this is just a section describing, I guess, 
the origin of the problem. Let me read you this. Now, again, we're talking about this whole concept because of Paul's claim that sin entered through one man. And because it entered through one man, it spread to all. That's the doctrine of original sin that we'll come back and clarify in a little bit next week. But listen to what this minister... Now, these are not Christians, ladies and gentlemen, mind you. This is a government agency who says this. If I said this from the pulpit, you'd fire me. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch. Deny him these wants and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is dirty. He has no morals. No knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. Yours! Your little darlings! They're born delinquents! My little darlings! No, not mine. <laughs> uh, if permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, and a rapist. That's your children, ladies and gentlemen, and mine. Because through one man, sin entered. I'll tell you this and we'll quit. You know, um, I raised three girls, and we're not finished, really. Um, just because they're married and have two children doesn't mean they're raised. Uh, I thought it meant that, but it doesn't. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I'm finding out. But um, um, my children you know, spent a lot of time with me. And they learned a whole lot of bad things living with their daddy. I mean, they learned how to be obnoxious. They learned, I mean, everyone in our family is loud. Everyone in our family. I mean, when you asked for the ketchup at our supper table, you screamed for the ketchup. Because that's just the normal way of doing things at our place, you know. Uh, we scream. Uh, we're all verbal. We're all um, loud. We're all, I mean, and, and they saw me be selfish, and they saw me lose my temper, and they saw me, I never will forget over one homecoming one year, I got so mad at Megan that I chased her up the, the stairs, and I, I mean, if, I, if I'd have had a gun, I'd have probably shot her. Um, but, you know, just, they saw, they, they seen me do all of this. But one, one time, early on, Megan was about three. And um, we had a, when we lived in Ocala, we lived next to a, a group of, it was, they call it the woods. And it was a sweet little place. And all the kids played out there. It was harmless. And she found an, a, a big turtle shell. It was, it was a big one. And it was empty. I mean, it didn't have anything in it. It was just a shell. And so Megan comes walking out of the woods with this turtle shell. And I'm outside raking leaves or whatever, cutting grass, whatever I'm doing. And I, and I said to her, I said, Megan, um, did you get that shell in the in the woods? Now I don't know what went on in what on what went on inside that little three year old's head, but apparently she thought taking a turtle shell out of the woods was a bad thing. And so she said, No. <laughs> now I saw her walk out of the woods with a turtle shell, you know. No, I didn't I didn't. Anyway, long long story short, I mean she, I mean she continued to insist that she didn't get it out of the woods until finally you know, we just beat the daylights out of her, and she finally said, you know, yeah, that's where I got it. <laughs> but here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. I taught my kids a lot of bad things. And some of their perversions right now, they all, they all say, 
Well, you're your daddy's daughter, you know. <laughs> Never any of the good parts, you know. Well, you're your mama's daughter, you know. But uh, one thing I did not teach my daughters, I did not teach them to lie. They didn't learn that from me. They've never heard me lie. They've never caught me in a lie. They've never heard me tell, tell them I'm not home. I never do that. I've never told a secretary to ever lie from me. They didn't learn how to lie from me, ladies and gentlemen. You know how they learned it? They brought it with them. Because through one man, sin entered. And it's ravaged us all. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, if, uh, if sin is allowed to continue its reign, if not in some way, either by cruel law or just law or by grace, we will all grow up to be a criminal, a thief, a killer, or a rapist. Because sin is an hostile alien force. I got something else I want to read. We don't have time. We'll do it next week. Let's close. Our Father, uh, we thank you for your word that does give us uh, an explanation for some realities that we all face. We face them in our children. We face them on Nankana Parkway. We face them at the mall. We face them in the mirror. We face them, we have to look no further than our own hearts because sin entered through one man as the scriptures teach. Father, our whole view of reality is based on what we see taught in this book. Help us to cope with reality all the better as we come to terms with the truth that you have written us in this book. We thank you for it. We love its content. We love its authority. And we gladly, in the name of Christ Jesus, submit to it. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you and good night. See you next week, Lord willing.